Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. A company in Arlington, Texas came up with a product known as the Safe Inside. It's basically just a huge steel cocoon that promised to prevent the destruction of a tornado from hurting you. It serves as an emergency in-home shelter for someone trying to make it alive through a storm, trying to hide from a storm. Alan Weaver is the guy that came up with this. He's the creator of these half-inch thick steel boxes. He was running a landscaping business in Lancaster, Texas back in 1994 when a tornado just came ripping through the town and the destruction was absolutely incredible. And sometimes if you've ever lived in tornado country, then you know that sometimes the most dangerous aspect of it can be the debris that comes down after the storm comes through and it just falls down and and rains down on people. And a good number of people were hurt in this storm. And so Alan came up with an idea. He felt that people would be willing to pay. See, that's the heart of the American economy right there. What will people be willing to pay for? He felt that people would be willing to pay for a steel box that could protect them from these storms. Now, each shelter came with a light and he invented these back in the 90s. So they even came with one of those old school phones. These things are small. Each box, listen how small they are. Each box is only 40 inches high and 27 inches deep. The biggest one that he made is 48 inches long, but it's supposed to fit two adults and two kids in it. I'm not sure I'd want to be trapped in there with four people. But they tested these boxes before they sold them. They tested them all out. They took bullets from handguns and they shot them and they, they couldn't penetrate them. And then they even took a two by four that was moving over a hundred miles an hour because that's a problem during these storms. And they could not put a hole in this steel box. And they weren't cheap. They weren't cheap at all. The larger model went for a couple of thousand dollars. But that would actually be a small price if it saved you from one of nature's most terrifying dangers. And just on a side note, they did get hit with another storm, almost exactly like the original one. And some of these people did have these boxes. Now, the book of Hebrews has warned us that as we face the storms of life, we need protection. We need help. We need encouragement and strength that alone comes from God to keep us from giving into the temptation of drifting away from Jesus Christ. We need to know the promise of Psalm 37 verse 24 that even though we may stumble in our faith, the Lord upholds us with his hand. If you live in tornado country, you want to have some sort of protection, some sort of place of safety more than what your typical home in the lower 48 can give you. But for the storms of life, your deepest need is something bigger. It is for the protection of a Savior who prays for you and loves you despite your sin, despite your weakness. 
And this is what Hebrews 7 is going to teach us. Hebrews 7.25 says that Christ is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. We desperately need this type of safety. And in Jesus, we have a high priest who takes us into God's presence. It is Jesus himself who provides holiness and purity. He prays for us continually. His ministry to the believer is permanent. His righteousness is working for our good, for our benefit. We could not be in better hands than to be in living fellowship with the Savior who intercedes for each and every one of us. It is in him that we can live with real safety. Watch how we begin this text. It's a fascinating text with verse 1 in Hebrews 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High, God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. Now, if we were asked this morning, what is one of the most important people in the Old Testament that we could think of? I doubt that the name Melchizedek would appear on our list of people that we would think of. He only appeared once in Genesis 14. He is referred to in Psalm 110, which is quoted twice in this chapter in Hebrews. So this Melchizedek is not exactly the central focus, the central theme of the Bible, but the Holy Spirit, he reached back into the Old Testament and used these two Old Testament texts to present an important biblical truth for us that the priesthood of Jesus Christ is superior to that of Aaron because the order of Melchizedek is superior to the order of Levi. Now, the author of Hebrews, if you've been tracking with this throughout our studies, he has brought up Melchizedek twice before. You remember that in Hebrews 5.10, he said that Christ was what? Called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. But then he went on to say something in the next verse. He said, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain since you have what? become dull of hearing. And then he brought it up again in chapter 6, telling us that Christ is our forerunner. And now the author takes the time to lay it all out for us. And he teaches us about Melchizedek because he's been building towards this in the book of Hebrews. This is the more advanced teaching for the mature in Christ. And I think, I think this church is ready for it. So let's go through this. Let's unpack Hebrews 7, and then we're going to see how this fits with our faith. The first thing that you need to consider is that for any Jew, any Jew or any Jewish believer in Christ in living in the first century, you would have believed that there was no true priesthood other than the priesthood of who? Aaron. And you understood that under the Arianic priesthood, that a priest was not a king and a king was not a priest. A priest was not a king, and a king was not a priest. Uzziah tried this. Remember him? He tried to take on the role of being a priest 
and a king in 2 Chronicles 26. And it didn't work out so good. He was struck down with leprosy. God is to be worshipped his way. The kings of Israel descended from the tribe of Judah and the house of David. The priests descended from the tribe of Levi and the house of Aaron. But the writer is showing us something, that even the law shows that there's a higher priesthood than this because Melchizedek was both a king and a priest. And as a king, he had power with men. And as a priest, he served on behalf of a holy and righteous God. Now, the story is found back in Genesis 14. And one of the things you need to understand in verses 1 and 2 of our text is that Melchizedek literally means righteous king. This was probably his title, not his actual name. Salem means peace. And this Old Testament king was also a priest. This is on the screen, one of the Amarna tablets that archaeologists have uncovered, and it contains some of the writings from the king who succeeded Melchizedek in Salem. And one of these tablets contains descriptions of Melchizedek that parallels perfectly the description given in the book of Hebrews, even though it was written well over a thousand years before Hebrews. There is evidence, friends, that this king actually lived exactly as described in the Bible. Now, the two qualities that characterized Melchizedek were righteousness and peace. And if you understand from the Bible, if you take the time to actually care about this and understand who this is and what he was about, you understand then that this man, he points so beautifully to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because Christ is both king and priest. And because Christ is known as the righteous one, known throughout the world as the prince of peace. Salem was an ancient name for Jerusalem. Salem was later renamed Jerusalem. The psalmist showed us this when he said of God in Psalm 76, he said, in Salem also is his tabernacle and his dwelling place in Zion. Consider the teaching. This ancient city that became Jerusalem already had a king who was also a priest back in the days of Abraham. Do you see that beautiful truth? And so it will be again when the king of kings and the Lord of lords returns to earth a second time and sits on his throne in Jerusalem. The messianic king will have a kingdom centered squarely in Jerusalem. It will be a kingdom of righteousness, God's righteousness, not man's, God's righteousness, and a kingdom of peace. Jesus is the king with the royal birthright of David from the tribe of Judah. Now, remember what happened. Good old Lot had been kidnapped. Lot had been taken captive. Abraham rescued Lot and killed, that's why the text refers to the slaughter of the kings, Abraham killed the four kings responsible for Lot's abduction. Abraham was left with the rewards from the battle. So how does the writer prove that Melchizedek was actually a priest? He mentions that Melchizedek blessed Abraham. Melchizedek brought out bread and wine and blessed Abraham. And what did Abraham do in turn? Abraham paid tithes to him of all the spoils that he had taken 
from the war. Now we read in Genesis 14 this. It says, Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tithe of all. Now, Melchizedek was a priest of the highest God, the one true God. And I want you to notice that Melchizedek's priesthood was so powerful. It was so indisputable that Abraham just acknowledged it right on the spot. He didn't have to guess. He just knew that this was a man of God. And at this historic meeting, Abraham, he gave a tenth of everything that had been taken from the defeated kings. There goes that preacher again talking about money. The tithe was presented to God through this priest, Melchizedek. But what was Abraham doing? And I want you to think about this with me. What was he actually doing? He was saying that the victory was not his own. He was saying that the victory belonged to God. And so therefore the honor and the glory belonged to God. And that is why we give back to the Lord, because we know that we are incapable of much on our own. We cannot do this thing on our own. We can't live a life that's holy and righteous on our own. And we cannot provide for ourselves. It is God who provides and so the honor and glory belongs to God. And by giving a tithe of the spoils of war, Abraham was saying the victory, it wasn't his. It belonged to God. And therefore, everything Abraham had gained in these battles, it belonged to God. Now, God had a right to it all. God had a right to every single bit of it. And Abraham, I believe he recognized this. And so he worshiped by just giving 10%. Now, we remember that under the law, the Jews were commanded to give God one-tenth of their crops and their herds and their flocks, and the tithes were brought to the Levites, and the priests would then offer those tithes to God on behalf of the people. But this concept did not start with Moses. Abraham practiced tithing long before the Mosaic law was given. Jacob, if you remember, he also did this in Genesis 28. Now, you could correctly argue that the New Testament never commands Christians to tithe. And I would agree with you on that because the New Testament is stronger than that. The New Testament principle is that God owns every single thing that we have, that we as believers are to give back to the Lord of what he has given us. You're just a steward of what he's given you. Because the work of God, it needs to be supported by the people of God. And here's the teaching. One day, every single person in this room, every one of us will give an account for how we use both our time and our money to further the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was willing to purchase our redemption with his blood. And he deserves so much more than just a little bit of money. He deserves so much more than just an offering. He deserves all that we have because no gift can compare with his matchless grace.
So the author in Hebrews is telling us four facts about Melchizedek. He was king and priest. He blessed others. He received tithes and he had a significant name. And this was all roughly 400 years before God established his priesthood through Aaron for the Hebrew people. Be careful with verse 3 as we move into this text. Read it with me, still speaking about Melchizedek. It says, Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest continually. Now, some people have tried to push this past what I believe is the author's original intent to suggest that this meant Melchizedek didn't actually have a father or mother, and so therefore he must have been an angel. But remember how much of a problem angel worship was for the Hebrew Christians. I think the author would have made it clear if Melchizedek was an angel, and he would have reminded them not to worship him. Others believe that this was Christ appearing in human form before his incarnation. But then, follow the logic, the author actually would be arguing that Christ was a priest after the order of himself. And Hebrews actually says here that Melchizedek was like the Son of God, like the Son of God. He didn't refer to him as God. And I would also argue that the context of Genesis 14 argues against it. And here is why. When Christ appeared in the Old Testament, it wasn't just because he was on vacation. There was a purpose. There was a reason he came in the Old Testament. It was to bring a message from God to man. But that, that is not what is taking place in Genesis 14. Melchizedek was the king of Salem. If this was Christ, then he would have been ruling as a king in Salem for an extended period of time. All that the author is doing, in my opinion, is using a metaphor to say, from what we know about Melchizedek, Moses didn't record for us anything about his father or his mother. Moses didn't tell us about his birth or his death. He must have been appointed directly by God to this office. We don't read of a priest that went before him and passed it on to him. He didn't establish priests that would follow after him. He stands as a timeless priest. And in this, he represents the eternal son of God because no one came before him in this office as a priest of God. And we have no mention of anyone taking his place after he died. Because this man, he just comes onto the pages of Scripture and then he leaves again without much notice. He remained a priest forever because no one took his position after him, which again makes him like Christ. No genealogy contains his name. Don't overlook that fact. There are many lists of names in the book of Genesis, but no genealogy actually contains his name. There's no record of his birth. Now, the Levitical priests, we remember, they had to be able to prove that they belonged to that priestly line. The priests descended from the tribe of Levi and the house of Aaron. And even the silence of Scripture about the lineage of Melchizedek, it points to Jesus Christ. Now, the Levitical priests, they only ministered for 20 years. 20 years. They started when they were 30, and they were done when they were 50. 
Melchizedek remained a priest continually because there's no record of the end of his priestly service. But for Christ, with his eternal divine nature and his resurrected body, he has a never-ending priesthood. Hebrews is telling us something this morning. It's telling us to build our life based on a powerful king with an indestructible life. Build your life on a priest that understands our world and has bridged the separation between God and man through his indestructible life. His empire will never fall. You remember if you're a student of history that the Egyptian pharaohs, they lost their power and they lost their empire. The Israelite kingdom of Saul, David, and Solomon, what happened to them if you studied the Old Testament? They slowly disintegrated as the people left God's way. The Babylonians were then conquered. The Medo-Persian Empire rose and it fell. The Greek Empire rose and fell. The Roman Empire rose and fell. The Turkish Empire rose and fell. There were the years of the Dark Ages with the city-states and the feudal kingdoms, and then eventually the rise of the nation-states. The Spanish territories were stripped away from Spain one by one. The Napoleon army and empire fell. The French monarchy was rotted from within and was destroyed by angry mobs of revolutionaries, and I think that same thing is happening there today. The Russian czars crumbled in revolution. The British Empire faded away. The German, Italian, Japanese axis, it fell. And friends, one day, the United States of America will fall because there is a beginning and there is an end. But there is a kingdom that is coming that is not of this world that I am a citizen of. And I hope you are too. In that kingdom, it will never fade and it will never fall. And it will never die because of the power of the indestructible life of Jesus. And it is by this power that a better hope is introduced, a better hope by which you and I can draw near to God. Now, this is an interesting text to try to teach coming up, but it moves pretty fast as we move forward. So keep your eyes on the main points of the text and stay with me. We'll pick it up starting now in verse four. It says, now consider how great this man was to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi who received the priesthood have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law that is from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. The author is showing us that Melchizedek was greater than even Abraham. The descendants of Abraham received tithes from the priests, the sons of Levi. The Levites, you remember, they had no inheritance of land when the tribes came into the promised land. So they were supposed to be supported by their brethren. But Abraham, he, he paid tithes to Melchizedek. Abraham was the one who possessed the promises of God. He was such a great, great man, but Melchizedek was even greater. Both were men, but Melchizedek, the writer is saying, was even greater in status, greater in rank than Abraham. Abraham recognized that Melchizedek was a mediator between God and himself. Watch how the text continues, starting in verse 6. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now, beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. 
Here's the principle. Just key in on this. Greater people bless lesser people. Even though he did not come from the Levites, Melchizedek blessed Abraham. So this shows he was greater than Abraham. And then we read starting in verse 8. It says, Here mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them, of whom it is witness that he lives. Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Here in verse 8, it refers to the Levites. They continued from generation to generation. One man died and another took his place. Then another one would come on the scene and die. And he would, another man would rise up and take his place. But there in the text, it refers to Melchizedek with no record of his birth, no record of his death, no record of a predecessor or a successor in his office. He is just simply presented in the Old Testament as living, just being alive, as living. The sons of Levi, they received tithes from their brethren. Every one of them died, but Scripture never records the death of Melchizedek. And even Levi is said to have paid tithes to Melchizedek. Now, that's a little strange for us, but then how did that exactly happen? Well, it says there in Hebrews that he was still in the loins of Abraham when Abraham tithed. Now, why would the author make such a point? It seems a little off to us, but you have to remember that in Bible times, your offspring, they took part in your actions because life simply passes from one generation to the next. And so Levi was present in Abraham, even though Levi was the great grandson of Abraham. And now the author is simply telling us that Melchizedek was better than the Levites. He was better than the entire Aaronic priesthood. You see, the writer was forcing the readers to see how much more they have in Jesus Christ than they ever had in the Jewish system and the rituals of the Old Testament law. So why would you go back? Why would you go back to something that was inferior? Why go back when they have a supreme and sovereign priest in the person of Christ. Benjamin Franklin, he was an interesting guy. At one point in his life, he decided that he would settle on 13 virtues by which he thought he was going to improve himself and make himself better. Here are some of the things that he included and he put on his list. He said of silence, speak not, but what may benefit others or yourself, avoid trifling conversation. About frugality, he said, make no expense, but to do good to others or yourself, that is, waste nothing. Industry, lose no time, be always employed in something useful, cut off all unnecessary actions. And then he wrote about tranquility. He said, be not disturbed at trifles or accidents, common or unavoidable. But here's the part I want you to think about what he did. He set up a book with a page for each virtue that he wanted to work on, lining a column where he would record what he called the defects, basically where he messed up, where he didn't cut it, where he didn't make it. And he chose a different virtue to work on each week, noting every mistake that he made every single day. And he would start this list over every 13 weeks so he could work through the list four times a year. 
And for decades, Franklin carried this little book with him. For decades, he did this, trying to keep this 13-week cycle where he kept all of his own rules. Surprise, surprise, he never made it. But as he made some progress, he discovered something. He found himself struggling with yet another defect in his life. It's called pride. Because even if we think we have overcome our pride, we become proud of our humility. It's the tragic tale of man. And that is part of the message here in Hebrews. You see, trying to live your life by a list of rules never made anybody a better person. So don't live your life that way. Depend on Jesus Christ because it is Christ alone who has the power to bring you close to God. Rely on Jesus, the only way to draw near to God. See, Jesus provides a better hope than any law. Trying to keep the law keeps you away from God because you can never measure up to his absolute standard of righteousness. You're always going to fail if you try it on your own. But the believer who trusts in Christ will find victory in the Christian life because Jesus never fails. He is a priest forever. Remember that this is what the believers were facing. They were tempted to go back away from the Messiah as their great high priest, attempting to try to find significance again in the Levitical system with all its sacrifices, with all its rules, with all its rituals. But the author is telling them before Aaron, before the tribes of Levi was Melchizedek, a king and a priest who foreshadowed a greater king and priest, Jesus Christ. You see, if you want to walk with Christ, don't depend on the law. Don't rely on the rituals of religion. Don't trust in some list of rules of do's and don'ts because the law is weak. It is useless to make you mature in Christ. Verse 11 what the author says. He says, therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? So at this point in the text, I want you to know that Genesis kind of falls into the background and Psalm 110 now moves into becoming the focus. And take a look at what David predicted about the Messiah around 1000 BC. He wrote that the Lord has sworn and will not relent. And what did he say about the Messiah? He said, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. If God was setting up the Messiah as a priest forever, follow the logic, then it meant that the Aaronic order of priests must come to an end because Jesus is our eternal high priest. And the message is that perfection did not come through the Mosaic laws. Perfection did not come through the Old Testament priests of the nation of Israel, but through the Son, Jesus the Christ. Perfection, what does that mean? It means maturity in Christ. This has been a theme all throughout Hebrews. And so the question was, could a person grow to maturity in Christ by keeping the Levitical system of priests, the sacrifices, the rituals, and the legalism that men had added to the beautiful Mosaic law? Or does maturity come about by having access to the grace of God through faith in the person and redemptive work of Jesus Christ? 
You see, the Mosaic laws, they could never provide justification. They could not lead to sanctification. They could not lead to glorification. The Old Testament priests could not complete the work of God in the heart of the person coming to worship Him. You see, the animal sacrifices could not give someone a perfect standing before God. They couldn't do it. And the writer is saying that the Mosaic Covenant, it came in 1446 B.C. when the Hebrews received it at Mount Sinai after leaving Egypt. Since God had already promised through David in Psalm 110 in 1000 BC that the coming Messiah would be a priest like Melchizedek. This tells us that God intended to end the Levitical priesthood because it was insufficient. It was inadequate. You see, if all we would have needed as believers was the Old Testament laws and the Levitical priests to reconcile us to a holy God, then the Messiah, Jesus, would have come as a Levitical priest. But there was a promise of a better priesthood because the Mosaic law was only intended to instruct the nation of Israel how to live. It could never give a person the righteousness of Christ. But look at verse 12 a significant verse in your understanding of the Bible. For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. Wrestle with this verse in your own study of God's word. Here is the teaching. The priesthood was such a major part of the Mosaic Covenant that this predicted change in the priesthood tells us that the whole Mosaic Covenant was brought to an end through Christ. Let me explain it like this. The President of the United States cannot proclaim himself King of the United States because our laws make no provision for a king. First, what would have to happen? The law would have to be changed. This is why we are not under the law. It is not what God has given to regulate the lives of Christians. Our position is in Christ, and we live according to the Spirit of God. He is our guide as we study God's Word. You see, if Christ is our high priest today, then there has to be a change in the law because Jesus could not even qualify as a priest underneath the Levitical system. He was from the tribe of Judah, not of Levi. Meaning if the law has not been done away with today, then neither has the Levitical priesthood, and we better start sacrificing some animals. But if Christ, if Christ is our high priest, we cannot be under the law. We cannot be, because it's either Christ or it's the law, but not both. And if you understand the significance of what this is teaching, then you recognize that every single prayer offered in the name of Christ is another affirmation of the end of the law. You see, the law had a purpose. It was our tutor until Christ came. The law had a purpose for Israel, but its supervision of the lives of the people ended at the cross with the death of Jesus Christ. It has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. It has been taken out of the way. The Apostle John said it like this. He says, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Paul said in Galatians that the believer has been set free from the law, not free to sin. Don't get that in your head. It's not about being free to sin, but free to follow Christ, free to follow the governing of the Spirit of God and the Word of God in our lives, free to follow Christ. 
And the author of Hebrews is telling the Jewish believers that if they go back to hiding out and following the Jews, if they were going back to the Aaronic system, they were heading back to a system that could never bring them to maturity in their faith because it failed to give the believer direct access to God. And so he explains in our next two verses, for he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no man has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. Verse 13 starts out referring to the Lord. He arose from another tribe, Judah. But the Mosaic law, it tells us that the tribe of Judah had nothing to do with the priesthood. You see, the end of the law was a pretty big deal to the Hebrew community. And so the author had to prove it. He had to back up his point. The author now tells them this change can be confirmed from the Old Testament prophecies. Micah 5.2, Isaiah 11.1, they all tell us that the Messiah would come from the tribe of Judah, not the priestly tribe of Levi. And watch how this fits with our last three verses. We read starting in verse 15. And it is yet far more evident... If in the likeness of Melchizedek, there arises another priest who has come, not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. For he testifies, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. This is another proof that God made a change in the priesthood. It is that God predicted that the Messiah would live forever. This is the quote of Psalm 110 that we read before. No ordinary Jew could ever meet these qualifications of becoming a king and a priest because he could not be born from two different tribes at once. That is impossible. He couldn't be born of the priestly tribe of Levi and the royal tribe of Judah. How could the Messiah be both a king and a priest? How could he be both God and man born into the tribe of Judah? Jesus had the right to be king. But Jesus, he did not become a priest because he was born into a priestly tribe. He became a priest because he could not die. And he was appointed to this by his father. He demonstrated this with his indestructible life, that he was a member of Melchizedek's order since in scripture, there is no record of Melchizedek's death. Jesus fulfilled Psalm 110. He is our high priest forever because of his resurrection. And normally, when a Levitical priest died, their ministry was over. But the death and resurrection of Christ was just the beginning of his ministry as our high priest. God took an oath in Psalm 110 that Christ will be our priest forever. And no oath from God, no oath from God will ever be revoked. His priesthood is secure and his people are secure in him. And this is the foundation for our permanent security in Jesus Christ. When you teach at conferences, you can meet some interesting people. An 84-year-old man once came up to talk with one of the speakers after he had preached. And this old man, he was just sitting there waiting his turn. And the old man was waiting to finally get an audience with the speaker. And so when the people left, the speaker, he made his way over to this short little old man. And the old man looked at him and then he put his hands on his shoulders and he said this. He said, I am 84 years old 
And five years ago, my wife died after 51 years of a good marriage. I cannot express to you the pain that I feel every single morning when I drink my coffee at the kitchen table alone. I have begged God to relieve the terrible loneliness that I feel. He hasn't answered my prayer. The ache in my heart has not gone away. He said, but... And he was struck with emotion at this point. And the gentleman just kind of paused and looked aside. And finally he could continue and he said, God has given me something far better than relief for my pain. Because through his trials, through his pain, through his study of God's word during this time, God had given him a better understanding of Jesus Christ. And he said this, he said, it's worth it all. And then the old man spoke one last time telling the preacher, whenever you preach, Make much of Christ. And with this, he just turned and walked away. The writer of Hebrews, if you haven't noticed, makes much of Christ. He really does. In the first 10 verses of Hebrews 7 this morning as we were studying, there is actually only one command. It was back in verse 4 where he said, Now consider, now consider how great this man was to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. Consider Melchizedek, Hebrews is saying. Why? Because he points to Christ. Behold, that's the message. Behold the greatness of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus uprooted the law because it didn't produce fruit in the life of the believer. And in its place, he planted grace. The law was weak. The law was ineffective. But grace is effective and it is filled with assurance. And so never forget that it is grace, not the law, which enables us to draw near to a holy and righteous God. You see, the rigid rules of men, they provide no access to God. Legalism provides no security. Our security is in a Savior who has fulfilled the law for us. Our security is in a Savior who has brought us His grace. Being right with God, you hear that phrase all the time. It doesn't mean a list of things we must do or a list of things that we cannot do. And it doesn't even mean that we turn to a priest who is just as sinful as us because we turn to the high priest after the order of Melchizedek. He is the one to bless us. He is the one to keep us. And he enables us to give back to him in love. Not because we're trying to earn something before God, but because of mercy. You see, our high priest is indestructible. He lives permanently and he is able to do what no earthly priest could ever do. Jesus knows where we're coming from. He knows where we're going. He has the power to keep our salvation secure and provide the path to maturity in him. You see, we serve a God who saves us, strengthens us, and fills us with his power to trust and obey him. Be thankful. Be thankful that the priesthood has changed. Be thankful that the law has been fulfilled. And then be thankful for his wonderful and amazing grace. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word 
is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.